1: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the May 17th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight we go Hollywood, the glitter of stardom, the glamour of Tinseltown, as we dip into the IMRU archive for Hollywood Pimp. But first, the story of a closeted Hollywood heartthrob for which Steve Pride journeyed up the coast to the Santa Barbara home of Tab Hunter. When
2: I count three, will all of the ladies in the audience please go, <sighs>
3: Tab, when I was young, he just was amazing looking. Beautiful California surfer that every single girl or boy would want to make out with. Mr. Tab Hunter. He was the embodiment of youthful American masculinity.
2: I uh yeah.
0: I think I've died and gone to heaven.
4: Kids and the fans just gravitated
3: to him. He was the all-American boy, and nobody sold that image
0: better.
2: How do you shave,
5: Tab? Well the Gillette Super Speed, of course. What do you like about Tab Hunter?
6: Well, there's <laughs> quite a few things.
5: Don't you ever think about marrying?
2: All the time, Ernie. That's what keeps me single. Hello, I'm Tab Hunter and I've got a secret. My name is Tab Hunter. I've heard of you. I've been around a long time.
7: <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning because this is a big life. Oh my God,
2: 1931 was the beginning. That's you a long were born, time. what happened next? No, You had a really rough childhood. I had a very abusive father. He was very abusive to my mother. And she left, took my brother and myself from New York to San Francisco. So we spent the first few years of our lives up in the Bay Area. What was she like? My mother was a really strict, religious German woman. She didn't put up with nonsense. She was a very serious person, and she kept telling us all the time, what you learn, no one can take away from you. And she pushed education, 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 because it's everything. She worked like a dog to keep us going to private schools. Your mom had a saying about being showy. My mother used to say, nothing for show. So what happened? I wind up in show business. She never liked the Hollywood hoopla. She only did one or two interviews in all the time that I was in the movies. It just wasn't her thing. She wasn't comfortable with people being in the public eye because it was too much adulation. And she said people have got to learn to divorce themselves from themselves. I was surprised to find you were very shy. Extremely. How did you become an actor? I was at a stable. I had a job out there on the weekends. I was about 14. And Dick Clayton, he was an an actor, and he came out to the studio with Ann Blythe and was doing a photographic layout with her. And I used to see him out there all the time writing, and we struck up conversation, and I knew he was an actor, so I kept asking him a lot of questions. And he said, if you're really serious, you should think about doing that. And he was the one who, when I was in New York, underage in the Coast Guard, he got me tickets to see my first Broadway show, He was the one who kept planting the seed all the time. You've got to work. This is not something that you fall into.
7: I guess your first big break was being signed with Rock Hudson's agent, Henry Wilson.
2: Dick Clayton introduced me to Henry Wilson. But he told me, he said, beware of Henry because Henry's reputation is kind of strange. So I just think you should just be aware. And I was. Henry was a fairly good agent, but I left him. When Dick Clayton became an agent, because he was part of my family, my mother knew him, my brother knew him, I knew him, he was a great person. And Henry was so upset by that, that he, Confidential Magazine was coming out on a story on Rock Hudson, And he gave them a story on me when I'd been arrested like when I was 16 or 17 years old for being at a party that a bunch of guys were at that were dancing together. You know, you might have called it a gay party, but that word wasn't around in those days. Henry Wilson liked to change his client's name. How did Art
7: Galeen become Tab Hunter?
2: Well, they said we have to tab you something, so that's how Tab came about. And I showed horses, hunters and jumpers. So they picked Tab Hunter as opposed to Tab Jumper. So you became Tab Hunter, and then what? The first big film I had was an independent called Island of Desire with Linda Darnell. I did a test with Linda, and then I went off to Jamaica, and we did it in Jamaica and London, and I was terrible. I mean, really, really bad. In fact, I was so bad, I probably couldn't get a job for well over a year. But you improved. Just a few
7: years later, you beat out James Dean and Paul Newman for the lead in Battle Cry.
2: Merv Griffin, Marilyn Erskine and Merv and I were out having dinner one night, and Merv said, I've just read a book called Battle Cry, and uh, I think you'd be perfect for Danny Forrester. You should have your age in check on it. So I immediately bought the book, read it, reminded me of my brother so much that I underlined everything pertaining to the character of Danny, and my agent got me a, an interview at Warner Brothers. I did a test, did another test, did another test. I did nine of them. After the eighth one, they went back to New York and tested Jimmy and uh, Paul. And then they came back and said, okay, kid, we'll give you one more chance. And uh, I thought it was terrible, the last test. And that's the one that got me the role.
7: As a gay kid, my favorite Hunter film on the late show was... Damn Yankees.
2: That was a fun film to do. I loved it. It was the original Broadway cast. I was the only outsider in it. And Jack Warner bought that as a gift for me, as a makeup gift because we'd had a big argument. (laughs) But I was thrilled about that because it was my first musical. And I loved that cast. I mean, how could you not love Gwen Verdon or Bobby Fossey or... Gene Stapleton, Ray Walson, my gosh. Well, if you've got a
7: dance in a film, Bob Fosse is a pretty good guy to start with.
2: (laughs) Well, I told Bobby, I said, I've got two left feet. He said, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. (laughs) You had trouble with the director, George Abbott. He didn't want me from the start. He thought Tab Hunter's a little light in his loafers. I thought, oh, really? You know, come on, give me a break. Jack Warner said, I bought it for Tab Hunter, and Tab Hunter's going to do it, period. And you don't say no to Jack Warner. By then, you were already a really successful recording artist. How'd that come about? Natalie Wood and I were on promotion in Chicago for a film called The Burning Hills. It was a Louis L'Amour novel that Warner Brothers had put us in. It wasn't very good. The best thing in it was my horse. We were in Chicago, and this DJ, Howard Miller, heard me singing. And he said, did you ever think of recording? And I said, no, gosh. I used to sing in the shower a lot where everyone sounds good, <laughs> or I sang in church. And he said, uh, would you mind if I talk to Randy Wood about you, uh, go in and see him? I said, sure. So Randy Wood was president of Dot Records. He called me in. He heard me sing. He presented me with a tune called Young Love. I recorded it on a Friday. Monday morning, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard and when I heard it in the car radio, I almost hit a palm tree. I was so nervous and so excited about it. And it knocked Elvis out of the number one slot. Stayed there for about six and a half weeks. you know. And we used Elvis's backup, the Jordanaires. He wasn't happy about that. But then I've got to tell you what happened after that. Yeah. We recorded an album a Dot. And then Jack Warner immediately called me into the office and said, wait a minute. What the hell do you think you're doing? I said, well, I was asked if I wanted to record, and I. He said, "We own you for everything." I said, "But well, Mr. Warner, you don't have a recording company." He said, "Well, we do now. When they started Warner Brothers Records, <laughs> you recorded
7: a lot, those
2: I did quite a few albums and quite a few singles. Yeah,
7: in the fifties, you were seen as this golden boy that everyone wanted, but you were going through so much pain, having to hide your sexuality."
2: I wasn't so much hiding as running away. Whenever something was kind of scary for me, I would run out to the horses. They were my touch of reality in that unrealistic world of Hollywood. I was very, very comfortable shoveling the real stuff.
7: (laughs) Is that basically what Hollywood is, shoveling the stuff?
2: Well, I think you play the game. I mean, that's your job. In those days, when you were under contract to a studio, you played whatever they wanted you to do. If they're building you into the all-American boy, that's your job. If you don't do the things they ask you to do, either you're on suspension from the studio. Talk to Betty Davis about that. (laughs) She had a 1,000 of them. Either you're under suspension, or they get rid of you and get someone else who will do what they want. Let's talk about relationships. You dated Tony Perkins. For about three years, yeah. Tony was a very good actor, a very bright young man, had a great sense of humor. It's was just very sad the way his life ended.
7: The pressure in any relationship is intense, but to have one where you have to keep it so secret.
2: Well, I've always felt that it's nobody's business. I've always felt that way. But you still had to hide it back in the day. I never thought about hiding it. I just kept on the go. It's hard to hit a moving object. Your big comeback. I hate to use that
7: word, but... I was doing dinner theater back in the 80s, the same time you were down in St. Petersburg, so it was a comeback. Your big comeback in the 80s was thanks to a queer icon and his film, Polyester.
2: John Waters called me up. He said he'd like to send me a script. So I said, please. And then he said, how would you feel about kissing a 300-pound transvestite? (laughs) And I said, I'm sure I've kissed a hell of a lot worse. And I'd met Divine before, who was absolutely wonderful. And having worked with Divine in polyester, which was a great experience, it's because of that that we used him in our film, Lust in the Dust. Which I love. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because Alan single handedly raised all the money for that film. It was a script that I wrote. It started out as The Reverend and Rosie, and it was going to be with Cheetah Rivera and myself, but Cheetah was tied up on Broadway doing The Rink with Liza Minnelli. So then I wanted Shirley MacLaine to do it and I couldn't get that done. And then Alan, I met Alan and he said, I think it should be a comedy Western and you should call it Lust in the Dust and you should use Laney Kazan and Divine as half sisters. And I thought, whoa, what a great idea. And uh, he left Fox and um, that was our first film together.
7: Well, tell me about meeting Alan because that's a love story. Well,
2: he was at 20th Century Fox. I went in to do an interview with him about uh, having worked at Fox. And I presented my script to him, and he read it and got back to me and said that he thought it was a really good idea. He presented it to Fox, but they passed on it. And then we spoke about that, and he said, I'll leave Fox. I'll find a way of making this happen. He's a very good producer. When did you know he was the one? The one. I just never thought of it that way. I just thought... That kid is really sharp. I really like him. He's a decent human being.
7: You seem to be a very happy person.
2: You know, I'm a firm believer that somewhere under the pile of crap, there is a pony. Go for it.
7: Do you think your looks hurt you being taken seriously as an actor?
2: Probably, but people always put emphasis on the wrong thing. I don't place importance on that. I never have. What you are as a person inside and how you think, those are important things. The rest of it was a bunch of garbage. You're a really cool guy. I mean, you
7: think of old stars like Norma Desmond and Sunset Boulevard, and here you are with your dogs and your husband and your
2: ranch. And
7: What advice would you give to yourself as a 10-year-old if you could just whisper something in your ear back then?
2: I was an idiot at 10.
7: <laughs> 15. Uh, still an idiot. <laughs>
2: You're Catholic,
7: correct? Oh, yeah. But you had a bad experience coming clean to a priest in confession at one point. Well, that was
2: many, many years ago. Recently, we had a screening of our film in Connecticut. And only a few miles from the theater was my good friend Dolores Hart. She was an actress, but now she's a Mother Superior at the Abbey of Regina Laudis there. So I emailed the Mother Dolores and I said, I'd love for you to come to our screening. And she came to it. And Rex Reed and I were up on stage doing a little Q&A afterwards. And he introduced Mother Dolores. She stood up and took a a bow. And then, like the flying nun, came down the aisle to the footlights, you know, the front of the stage. And I jumped off the stage to stand by her because I really love her and I've known her a long time. And she looked right out of the audience. And I love what she said. I want to tell you all, there is no hetero. There is no homo. There is only love. I thought, whoa, (laughs) she's pretty fantastic.
7: I know Dolores Hart from King Creole with Elvis and
2: Where the Boys Are. Did you ever do a film with her? She actually did The Pleasure of His Company on Broadway with Cyril Richard. And when I was signed to do the movie, I was sure that it was going to be uh, Dolores Hart. But they gave it to Debbie Reynolds. Of course, I'd known Debbie forever, you know, because we grew up together.
7: You were on a lot of studio-arranged dates and things with Debbie I wouldn't call those
2: studio-arranged dates. The studio wants someone to go to an opening, you go. And why not go with somebody you know really well and enjoy being with rather than some nah, 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 pretty thing that's boring? Debbie a hell of a lot of fun. Always has been. And since she blew the French horn in the band at Burbank High School. And Natalie Wood? Nat was like my kid sister. She was much younger than me. And I really think uh, she's just a delightful, charming gal. And of course, I was so thrilled that we were able to get Bob Wagner in our documentary because R.J. is, without a doubt, the most level-headed person you'll ever meet, and he never talks about Natalie, and it was wonderful for him talking there about our relationship and all that because the press has been so despicable about Natalie's death, but then the press has a tendency to be like that. What's the biggest misconception
7: about Tab Hunter or Art Galeen? I don't know. Do you care?
2: No. <laughs> Your mom had some mental health issues. Oh, big time, yes. I had to commit my mother to, to a mental institution for 37 shock treatments. Back
7: then, homosexuality was actually a mental illness or classified as a mental That's illness. That's right. People forget how different the times were. Yeah, very so different. talk about being gay in that period in which the word didn't exist. and
2: We never talked about it. The only person I could ever talk to was Dick Clayton. If I had any problems whatsoever, I would go to Dick Clayton. He was like a father confessor for me. That really helped me. Everyone needs someone to be able to talk to, I think.
7: What do you think of young Hollywood today? I mean, today, Matt Boomer can walk the red carpet holding his husband's hand.
2: That's fine, but you will not see a leading man in motion pictures doing that. It's the same today as it was back in the 50s and 60s. In that case, Hollywood hasn't come around to that. But uh, you will see gay comedians, characters, and leading people, perhaps on television or something. But I haven't seen it in motion pictures.
7: This has been a conversation with Tab Hunter. His memoir and the documentary about his life are both entitled Tab Hunter Confidential. This is Deep Pride. Thanks for listening. Young,
0: boy. Young boy.
1: Tab Hunter passed away in 2018. The documentary Tab Hunter Confidential can be streamed on Netflix and Hulu. The autobiography on which it is based can be found online at Amazon.com, at brick-and-mortar bookstores, even at the library. Stay tuned after this quick break for an interview with Scotty Bowers.
8: It's time for Who Said That? on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. Born in America, this Jewish feminist lived most of her life in Paris. When France joined World War II, she was aghast, saying, They shouldn't. They shouldn't. Eventually deciding to flee, she and her female companion hastily packed their winter clothes and left for the countryside, leaving behind most of their prized art collection, including a self-portrait of their close friend Picasso. In 1943, she said in her inimitable style, A nice war is a war where everybody who is heroic is a hero and everybody more or less is a hero in a nice war. Now this is not a nice war. Who said that? It was Gertrude Stein, the famous author, with her companion Alice B. Toklas close to her side. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson.
2: Hello, I'm Tab Hunter, and you are listening to I M R U Radio Magazine.
0: I am
4: You may not sympathize with the portrayals, and some of my best friends are, but they are real portraits of men—men
5: men maddened by forbidden desires for other men like them, homosexual. I
2: I guess we
5: have no other place. Sensitive, provocative, climactic. Some of my best friends are
4: rated
1: R. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. After chasing the notorious Scotty Bowers all over town in 2018, we finally caught up with him in Hollywood and had a confab around his dining room table.
6: This is Abby Dees
3: and Wendell Jones
6: talking with Scotty Bowers and Matt Turnauer about the new documentary Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. Matt, how did you meet Scotty?
3: Scotty
4: had just turned 90 and I met him in Gore Vidal's living room. That's right. I had known Vidal. I was his literary executor. And I'd heard about Scotty for years from um, members of the Hollywood community. Merv Griffin, in fact, was the first person to tell me about him, but not by name. He said there was a gas station on Hollywood Boulevard where you would go to get into trouble.
5: (laughs) Go to get into trouble.
3: Get into trouble means have serious fun and have sex with anybody who came by and was up for it. Is that pretty much right?
5: Pretty much right, yes. Yes. Yeah, Scotty
4: was the male madam in the center of the sexual underworld of Hollywood starting from the time he got that job at the gas station. And this was a kind of necessary niche job, I think, for someone. Stars really couldn't live authentic lives. They were very constricted by the studio system and morals clauses and the contracts, the Hayes Code, and... um, Joseph Breen, who was the enforcer of that, and the studio's self-policing, trying to create a white picket fence mm-hmm. image for their product. And the stars were really confined in what they could do, and Scotty created a uh, environment where they could let loose a little bit, and that was the gas station.
3: When you say male madam, it sounds as if Scotty was pimping but actually from the film it looks as if scotty treated this as a public service i mean you did not make a fortune doing this
5: i didn't make anything doing it from the people if i fix you up with someone i never took a dime or wanted a dime why don't more people approach it that way i was doing it to help people guys just out of the service who didn't have a dime nothing not a penny and someone would come in and say like the looks of them, say, I like to take him to dinner, and my answer was, "Why take him to dinner? You have drinks and dinner. Just give him twenty bucks and forget the dinner, and you got with him, and everything is perfect." That's the way I started it.
6: <laughs> How did people in this environment know to trust you? Because you really uh, didn't tell until no, very recently.
5: If you're around someone, like they'd be around me every day, right, or come in every day, soon. They got to be buddy-buddy with you. They knew you were a foxhole buddy, and everything was okay.
3: Now, you had a few people who were angry at you. Specifically, I'm thinking of Lucille Ball. And I'm wondering, why didn't those people try to rat you out? I mean, why was there so much protection and trust? When
5: Well, don't, don't forget, in Lucille Ball's case, their push only goes so far. Because she was mad at you for finding girls for Rookie. Right right, right, right. Because sometimes he'd see, Desi. In, Desi in, an, he'd, in an afternoon, he'd see three different girls.
3: How oh. did people have this kind of time?
6: That was my big question.
5: <laughs> and, and she was awfully upset about it.
6: But for the most part, it sounds like people understood that this was sort of a necessary outlet.
5: Yes, that's well put, a necessary outlet.
6: So, Matt,
3: what was it about Scotty's story that intrigued you enough to make a film? Because you would think, oh, it's all the prurient aspects, but that's not at all what the film looks like. I think
4: Scotty supplies us with an alternate history of Hollywood. That's what I was really interested in doing. I thought his story was remarkable. I'd heard about him before he published his book. And I knew about this gas station and I had been a writer for Vanity Fair for many years and actually had it on my list of things to explore because it seemed like it was a way to get at the hidden history of a city and the type of films I often make are alternate histories or different looks at things that we all think we know very well. So that's how I approached the story. Scotty wrote a memoir that was published in 2012 when he was 89 called Full Service. It's a remarkable record of what was going on behind the scenes and between the lines in Hollywood. I thought that was very interesting. I wanted to make a cinéma vérité film, though, about someone who, in his now ninety fifth year, is one of the most vital people I know. Who's certainly with it. You haven't lost the trick, uh, and uh, Scotty is very much the star of the film. So you see in this mirrored hall of memories that Scotty is walking through in the course of the film, a image of Hollywood that you have never really seen before through his eyes and through his memories. The film really centers around him. It's not an archival flashback or hit parade of gossip and salaciousness. Although there's
6: some good stuff.
4: Yes, definitely. It's a human story, but I think it's got enough gossip to satisfy anyone that might want to know a lot.
6: Well, you talk about the alternative history, and I'd like to ask you both, actually, from your positions. You know, your wife... Scotty Lois in the film makes a comment that people were angry with you for talking because as she said you took away their dream and I'm wondering what do you think the dream was versus what was the truth and I'd actually like both of you to answer that if you wouldn't mind
5: true people have dreams of people and uh, a lot of those dreams put them up on a pedestal where they don't do a thing. They don't do anyone or anybody or anything. Basically, when it comes to reality, people are still people. Mm. You follow? Some people take someone because they become a well-known actor or something and really do put them on a pedestal like they never do one thing. Everything is right and wonderful that they do. Nothing out of the ordinary.
6: Matt?
5: I
4: think that's very well put. It's surprising to me how persistent the Dream Factory's images are. I mean, this was something that happened 70, 80 years ago, the golden age of Hollywood, that was intent on creating straight-washed images Uh of people that were iconic and were brilliant in these extraordinary movies that have stood the test of time in many cases. I'm talking about Cary Grant, Katherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy, Rock Hudson, the list goes on for the people that Scotty knew and consorted with and had sexual relationships with. But these people had lives off screen. Now, they're public figures, and they turn out to be immortal icons of a particular time. And uh, that image has lasted But why shouldn't we know the full biography of someone who's an essential figure in the culture? Cary Grant is going to be iconic for many years to come. I don't want to know a straight-wash biography of Cary Grant. I'd like to have the additional information, if I'm going to care enough to know about Cary Grant's biography, of really who the person was in full. And Scotty provides that information as a primary source that uh, almost everyone else has left out of their uh, personal accounts
3: or at least everyone who survived to tell the tale has left out. This is Wensley Jones and Abby Dees in Hollywood. We're talking to Scotty Bowers and Matt Tynauer about the documentary Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. But in a way isn't somebody like Cary Grant a complete fiction? I mean even Cary Grant wanted to be Cary Grant.
4: That's his famous line. Yes. <laughs> But that doesn't matter. Cary Grant was a person, originally Archibald Leach, who became Cary Grant, who made 100 plus movies and is probably the most famous leading man of his generation. There have been many biographies written about Cary Grant. Scotty provides additional information about who Cary Grant was as a person behind the facade of Cary Grant that I think is very valuable to know. I've met many gay men who are of an older generation who are incredibly moved and identify with Scotty and his story a lot because they, as they've explained to me, uh, worshipped Cary Grant and thought to themselves or dreamt of themselves as uh, little boys or young men who were had same-sex orientations, oh, if only Cary Grant were for me, but I can't have Cary Grant because he's only interested in women. Well, <laughs> they're very intrigued and fascinated and I think in a way relieved by hearing that Cary Grant had uh, different facets to his personality and sexuality than the press office of MGM wanted them to believe
3: now Scotty because your life and career were such an open secret were you hounded by tabloids because you were the person who actually had the dirt on everybody
5: no because I didn't let anyone know that I had anything on anyone because I never said anything so even though people would guess that I did in reality I did not Because I did not until well, when I wrote the book, when the people who were all friends, when they were dead, and let me tell you, when you're dead, you're dead, period, regardless of what somebody thinks. I've seen too many guys get killed.
4: There were great risks at the time. It wasn't just the public finding out. You were gay, uh, there were lots of hazards. There were morals clauses in the contract that would assure you would be fired. There was a vice squad that was part of the Los Angeles Police Department that was like a sexual Gestapo.
5: A, that re- went they were red hot after World War II, the vice squad.
6: Were they red hot after you?
5: Red hot. They were red hot for years because it was a business, money was made.
6: So, did people pay them off to keep them quiet? Well, uh,
5: Harry Weiss was uh, number one attorney. What Har- Harry took me down to show me what and how he did it. When Harry would have a party at his beautiful home in Beverly Hills, he would have judges and their wives there. So, when he had a trial, he would put it before a judge he knew. Then he would take his boys, give them money to go pay the resting officers off out in a hallway, and they would disappear. And the judge would say, where are the resting officers? Oh, they had more important things to do. Case dismissed. He would dismiss 10 cases an hour, in an hour that way by paying off the guys with cash, of course. And that's just the way he operated.
6: Was the McCarthy spirit also playing into this? Were you aware of the McCarthy hearings and investigations going on with your friends and clients? Uh,
5: well, yeah, I mean, naturally you heard about it at a time. I paid no attention to it, but certainly did hear about it. But
4: ironically, J. Edgar Hoover, who was a huge supporter of McCarthy's and vice versa, was a client of Scottie's. So this actually shows you the hypocrisy and lies that uh, really were the foundation of this whole corrupt an oppressive system. At the same time, Hoover, who was probably a closet homosexual, huh. was assuring that gay people were persecuted, arrested, and had their lives ruined. He was living a secret life and encountered Scotty in La Jolla, and you can fill in the story And from he liked
5: there. to dress up in women's clothes. And my friend, the doctor in La Jolla, that he would come to him. And of course, he always had a young. Tall, nice-looking FBI agent with them who was straight, you know, and uh, the four of us would be at dinner, and my friend, a the doctor, there would be in women's clothes, and Jay, who would be in women's clothes, and the FBI to be FBI guy, and I'd be the two guys there.
6: Can you say Mike Pence?
5: <laughs> My anyway,
4: people ask me about corroboration and they don't believe Scotty. And there's, I call them the doubters. There's a whole tribe of people that really push back against this. And people who want a kind of straight washed history, I call them the pearl clutchers. <laughs> the pearl clutch. But so much corroboration has come up over the course of making this film. In the case of Hoover, I was interviewing a U.S. attorney whose parents vacationed in La Jolla in the 1950s. I didn't tell him I was doing anything with Scotty. I didn't mention Scotty Bowers at all. And apropos of nothing, he said, Oh, well, you know, my parents used to hang out in La Jolla in the 50s and they used to run into Hoover there all the time and he was there with his lovers.
5: Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> so
4: this is a U.S. attorney telling me something his very straight laced Republican New Jersey parents told him, which confirms. At the time and place, Hoover's presence in La Jolla, which is where Scotty places him. So many things like that have come up in ancillary interviews I've done as supporting evidence.
6: I will share just a very minor version of that. I was watching the film with my mother, and we got to the park about the uh, Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Yeah. And my mother said, oh, I remember as a little girl, my mother, who was from Los Angeles and sort of followed the social goings-on in LA and in the East Coast, she said, even I think before she even entered the world of the monarchy in England, that she was well known to be basically a courtesan and somebody who was very sexually promiscuous might be the wrong word, but this was not a surprise to her and that she had heard this from the time that she was a little girl in the 30s. But there is this image of the two of them, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, being this straight couple cast out because of their love. But it was more complicated than that, as you say. He could have never
5: been King of England just on the basis of the way he talked. (laughs) The funny little voice he had. (laughs) That's true.
6: And what he was doing.
5: Well, she, Wally, would tell him every move to make, do this, do that. She controlled him 100%.
6: And they were both involved, each of them,
1: with men and women. Oh, Yes. We'll be back with more from Scotty Bowers after this quick
8: break. It's time for Who Said That on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. In the 1700s, Britain was a highly patriarchal society. Only men could own property or vote. Women were simply considered inferior. In 1792, a certain female British writer and philosopher argued that women were not naturally inferior to men, but appeared to be only because they lack education and career opportunities. Truly an unconventional woman, her passions included anarchist William Godwin and most notably her close friend since childhood, Fanny Blood. Her self possessed intellect made people take notice. She once wrote, Independence I have long considered as the grand blessing of life, the basis of every virtue. Who said that? It was Mary Wollstonecraft, whose writings inspired the women's rights movement in America beginning in the mid 1800s. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Stephen
2: Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed. So pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest-running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU.
5: Just one weakness. The Army was proud of Master Sergeant Albert Callum. He had won the Distinguished Service Cross. He was put in charge of a company of men. He was a good soldier. In battle, the sergeant had killed without feeling. Now, alone with the young soldier, he felt warmth and tenderness. And he was afraid. The sergeant is Academy Award winner Rod Steiger in his most explosive role. The sergeant, from Warner Brothers Seven Arts in Technicolor. Rated R, restricted. Persons under 16 not admitted unless accompanied by parent or adult guardian. Just one weakness. Just one.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Now back to Scotty Bowers.
3: This is Wenzel Jones and Abby Deese in Hollywood. We're talking to Scotty Bowers and Matt Tynauer about the documentary Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood.
4: And in terms of corroboration, this is the thing that having gone through this process of making the film and kind of talking about it at dinner parties or at social occasions, I hear what people can't believe and they push back on because they read Scotty's book. I'd say the number one are Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, and the number two are the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. People's like, I just put my foot down there. This is absolutely impossible. Well, he places them at the Beverly Hills Hotel at the time. We found a photograph of them at the Beverly Hills Hotel with the pugs in the photo in the 50s, right when Scotty says that he was having encounters with them there. Then, if you read one of the volumes of the Cecil Beaton Diaries, there's a chapter titled Scotty, in which Beaton talks about his relationship with Scotty. Beaton photographed the Duke and Duchess. He was friendly with them, as he was with the whole royal family of that period. So there's another connection. Scotty knew Beaton through George Cukor. Beaton was in Los Angeles as the uh, production designer of My Fair Lady at the time. So there are all these vectors that connect and point in the right direction. And uh, what do you say to people that don't believe the things well, that
5: you say, basically as a matter of fact when i met the duke and duchess he said i feel like i already know you because four of my friends have recommended you over the years Cecil beaton who was a royal photographer byron desmond hurst who was a director there and uh, peter bull who was an actor an english actor peter bull and uh, david brown there were four people That told him about me. If you ever get to Los Angeles, you got to look up Scotty. So he felt I I felt like I already knew you because of four friends recommending you, which is pretty nice. There were
4: other ways that you had connections too, whether you knew it or not. Noel Coward, for instance, who you knew. That's right. Noel Coward's not even in the film, but you know this was was yeah. This was cafe society, basically, on one level. There was Hollywood, then there was intersection with cafe society. The Duke and Duchess were certainly in that, Cecil Beaton. All these people crossed over. We have to remember is it was a very small world. Hollywood was a very small town, and the gay community was even smaller, and the secret had to be kept. And people, once you were within that community and were trusted, you knew a lot basically, which I think is something that we don't realize now. People say, like, oh, well, how could Scotty have known so many people? It's like a very small world. If you knew George Cukor and he trusted you, you, by definition, would have met Hepburn and Tracy and Cary Grant.
3: Scotty, what has it been like, as a man with his finger on the pulse of the culture, to watch gay society go from being this terribly hermetically sealed, closeted thing to... West Hollywood Pride parades the Abbey is the center of right you know, the abbey. I mean what's it been Both like to watch that tra- yeah, yeah to watch that transformation
5: well I know but uh it, it should always be that way I mean regardless of what someone digs or what their bit is, everybody should be buddy buddy, you know
6: you know, one of the things that I think gets missed, and I've seen people refer to you as gay. I've seen them refer to you as a sort of gay madam, for lack of a better yeah. word. But you yourself are in many ways like the newest generation of yeah. people where you're really not terribly concerned about those labels. No,
5: I've been referred to as a lot of things, <laughs> but what's the difference? When somebody refers to you as something and you put, say, start coming up with, no, it's not true, Go along with everything that they say, because that's where they believe. So you're not going to change them. So whatever they think, that's the way it is.
4: I'm so inspired by his no labels, unneurotic attitude toward sex and sexuality. It's extraordinary to me. I think this is why Dr. Kinsey was fascinated with Scotty. He was very much active in a time where sexuality and identity was very siloed. It had become more siloed even. If you read the scholarship on this, there are wonderful books, there's one called The Invention of Heterosexuality. Basically the church and the medical community all kind of like herded people into these definitional categories. And we were really saddled with this in the middle of the last century. And as the middle class became more and more prominent in the country, these definitions became more and more prominent. Scotty just dispensed with this in life and never was concerned with it. It's very avant-garde, and you're right. It's very ahead of its time in terms of what younger people seem to be embracing today, this sort of attitude that has nothing to do with the received wisdom that we were all um, freighted with. But Scott, you seem to somehow escape the whole being worried about what people thought of you. And um. uh,
5: Right, because people that go through life wondering what people think about them and how they feel about them, you can foul yourself up completely trying to please someone else. You can please someone else by being yourself, too.
3: This is Wenzel Jones and Abby Dees in Hollywood. We're talking to Scotty Bowers and Matt Teinauer about the documentary Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. I have to ask, Scotty, have you ever said no to anything? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good
4: question.
6: You're the first
4: one ever to ask that. I've asked him that a hundred different ways. And uh, things get uh, pretty woolly when you get him going in a one-hour tear through the mirrored Hall of Memories.
6: (laughs) I would like to come back to uh, Dr. Kinsey because I think that's fascinating, but I think this brings up that might be getting a little bit lost in all the talk about the famous people that we know, that you were providing sexual services as a boy and a teenager and at one point for a number of Catholic priests. Right. And what struck me about that is that The way you describe it is that it was a completely consensual exchange from your point of view. Do you still feel that way? Well,
5: you'd say I feel that way, yes. I mean, if I appear to feel that way, then I must feel that way.
6: It looks like you do. Yeah. And looking at all of the stuff that's happening right now with the Catholic Church and the priests, from your perspective, how do you see that? What what do you think? uh,
5: I always knew that most priests were gay. Uh, they wouldn't have gone into that if they weren't, basically. And uh, as I said, when we moved to Chicago, I remember we moved on Oakwood Boulevard, and uh, we had a car with a little trailer, my mother, sister, and brother, and I, and we were unloading. The priest came across and introduced himself. I go and stay all night with that night. Uh, that first night, I'm over staying all night with him.
6: <laughs> but how do you... I don't even know how to ask this. What? (laughs) How, this is such a painful thing for so many people, but it wasn't a source of pain for you.
5: Never. How could it be a source of pain?
6: I don't know.
4: I've asked him many times about this as well, and I'm sure this is controversial. I'm sure it was controversial in his book, and it may be in the movie. Scotty feels that uh, this was okay for him. Yeah. And that's his opinion. He's been asked and answered that uh, many times in my presence, and it happens in the movie. I think three times. I, I quiz him on it. Um, it's very difficult for people to hear something like that. But in the course of the film, I wanted to show Scotty for who he is and what he believes. And this is—I uh, don't believe you believe that this is the right thing for everybody, but you believe that it was yeah. the right thing for you. I
5: think. I think everyone should have their. But some people are too rigid to square Mm -hmm. in what they do i can't do this i can't do that if this life is bad the next life will be better so many people do without in this life thinking there's going to be another life and because they did without in this life they did nothing that they control the next one which is hey have fun as you go because you only got one life to live (laughs) i think that's an interesting
4: message you know people ask me what i've learned from scotty i'm kind of like a bit of an opposite from him. I'm a cautious person, and I've kind of had all these fear-based reactions to sex and sexuality that are probably much more common among people of my generation. I think Scotty really is the outlier. He showed me that often you curse the chance that was wasted, which is a Cole Porter lyric. Cole Porter also having been a friend of yours. And of course, we're talking about consensuality here as well, and I think in um, your uh, career as a male madam, everything was consensual, and I've interviewed many people who were present at that time and attest to that—that that, uh, this was a, a happy period of um, really um, kind of kind of an incredible sexual halcyon period uh,
3: that Scotty um, helped create for a lot of people that were in need. So few of us will ever get to leave a legacy but you clearly are going to. What would you like it to be? How would you like people to speak of you 50 years from now?
5: Whatever way they want to do. That's the best way to do it. I mean, most people can't speak badly of me, but uh, people do speak different, so rather than try to rearrange it, whatever they want to say, perfect.
6: (laughs) Or do. I know that we only have a minute, but very briefly, uh, could you just say what you did for Dr. Kinsey? Because his research was groundbreaking, and you were very key to a lot of that research.
5: Well, yeah, because when I first met Dr. Kinsey, he said his best interviews are people in prison. I said, sure, because the goddamn warden lets them off all day and puts them in the library to talk to you. They're going to f- bullshit you all day long. Obviously, that's not a great deal. He thought it was, and I convinced him and got him to where... To, to know the, the reason why they did it. You know, prisons are the best interviews. Certainly they are, because they get time off. <laughs> and Matt, we have to
3: ask every filmmaker, what do you want people to take away from this? I think
4: Scotty really teaches us a lot. He's a primary source and an eyewitness to a side of Hollywood that has been uh, erased from the historical record. So his account of what he saw oftentimes in the sexual underworld that he was in effect mayor of, provides a missing piece from the historical record. And I think it's a vital missing piece. I'm amazed that people dismiss it as shenanigans or gossip. I make the analogy of Caravaggio, for instance, one of the greatest painters of his period, was to quote Gore Vidal, a same sexualist, at least for part of his life. Don't you want to know the full biography of Caravaggio? Why do you want to know a straight-washed biography of that man? You just want to know what he was doing in the painting studio, but you really don't want to know anything else about him. I think that leads you to misunderstanding him because a lot of the models he used in his paintings, for instance, were hustlers or prostitutes. This was the demi-monde that he existed in. So you need to really know and acknowledge the full biography of these great cultural figures. And I would argue that Cary Grant, for example, just to name one, is a great lasting cultural figure. So we can't straight wash history and Hollywood is a part of history.
3: This is Wenzel Jones and Abbey Decent in Hollywood. We've been talking to Scotty Bowers, the author of Full Service, My Adventures in Hollywood and the Secret Sex Lives of the Stars, and Matt Teinauer, the writer-director of the documentary, Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. minute you walked in the joint, I could tell you where I'm in, mean. no distinction, I mean, I'd be so like to you you know I going the point I don't buy my coat for oh. every
1: Scotty died a year after our interview. The documentary Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood can be rented to stream on YouTube, and Scotty's book is available wherever books are sold. Ryan Murphy's dramatization, Hollywood, can be streamed on Netflix. Wow, all that, and there's still time for a last word. And tonight, that's the Quentin Tarantino Top Gun is Gay monologue from the movie Sleep With Me what is top gun
0: you think it's a story about a bunch of fighter pilots it is a story about a man's struggle with his own homosexuality that's it that is what top gun is about man you've got maverick all right he's on the edge all right and you've got Iceman and all his crew right. they're gay and they are they represent the gay man right. all right and they're saying go go the gay way, go the gay way. He could go both ways. What
8: about Kelly
0: McGillis, Kelly McGillis, she's she's heterosexuality. She's saying, no, 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 go the normal way. Play by the rules, go the normal way. And they're saying, no, go the gay way. Be the gay way. Go for the gay way. All right, that is what's going on throughout that whole movie. He goes to her house, right? All right, it looks like they're going to have sex. You know, they're just kind of sitting back. He's taking a shower and everything. They don't have sex. He gets on the motorcycle, drives away. Next scene, next scene you see her. She's in the elevator. She is dressed like a guy. She's got the the cap on. She's got the aviator her glasses. She's wearing the same jacket that the Iceman wears. She is okay, this is how I got to get this guy. This guy's going towards the gateway. So I got to bring him back. I got to bring him back from the gateway. So I'm going to do that through subterfuge. I'm going to dress like a man. <laughs> All right. That is how she, she approaches it. Right. Okay.
1: No word on the queerness of the Top Gun sequel coming out in November, but I'll view it through a lavender lens regardless of intention. Okay. That's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And remember, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catches at iTunes, Spotify. Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. We close with I'm Not Gay from the new Jack Plotnick film, Mailman. Good night. I'm not gay. I can't be
3: gay because gay is a construct anyway. Labels are ideas. They are not human beings. My generations evolved to do away with these things. with non-bi. Sex for us is not about a girl or guy. Humans connect in so many different ways. For example, a simple conversation can often be much more intimate than a sexual experience. That's an interesting observation, but it doesn't really have anything to do with sexual orientation. But I'm not gay, no I can't be gay, because gay is not a person, just a word you say. Name one thing in nature that's just this way or that. I can't be gay, because gay is old hat. So you're bi? No, I'm not saying... Look, I'm just commenting on the weight we put on self-imposed identity in the first place and how actually unimportant it is. In fact, don't even call me.
5: Pan,
3: poly, fluid, or bi Because those are words and I really want to try to not define my sexuality As anything other than I am me There's a spectrum that's linear and also 3D And it's also always changing end of time and space, it's free We're all just atoms in a cosmic ballet And from this logic you can see I'm not gay